completely believe Kurt Warner when he said it. He hangs in and is intercepted. O.J. Atagwe! Atagwe all the way to the one-yard line and into the end zone. Touchdown, St. Louis. O.J. Atagwe with his eighth and ninth picks of the year this afternoon. Uh, we talked about Otagwe being the best defensive back on the field. He's the guy. He'll make the play. This guy has come in as a really good defensive back, and sure enough, and he makes a nice run after the after the interception here, gets this ball in the end zone. My parents really helped to form my character as far as these are some of the attributes that you have to have because this is what makes you a well-rounded person. And so just having that foundation of having my mom and my dad in my life and continuing with my brother and Coach Habis and Coach Harry Lumley, it's just when you have men like that in your life that hold you to a standard to live by that, I mean, it's, it's priceless. On the show today, Oshimigo Otogwe, here to talk about his playing days in the NFL and what it took for him to turn his childhood dream of playing professional football into a reality. In this conversation, we'll explore how Oshimigo developed the mindset, self-belief, and confidence needed not only to play eight years in the NFL, but to also thrive at his position. In his best-selling book, Atomic Habits, author James Clear emphasizes that it is so easy to overestimate the importance of one defining moment and underestimate the value of making small improvements on a daily basis. He goes on to say that we often convince ourselves that a massive success requires massive action and that we put pressure on ourselves to make some earth-shattering improvement that everyone will talk about. Meanwhile, improving by just 1% isn't particularly notable. Sometimes it's even unnoticeable, but it can be far more meaningful, especially in the long run. The difference a tiny improvement can make over time is astounding. When I think of James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, I can't help but think about Oshimago Otogwe's journey and the guiding framework that he has put into action in his life from an early age to pursue what seemed to be an impossible dream, to one day play in the NFL and to follow in the footsteps of his childhood hero, Barry Sanders, all-star running back from the Detroit Lions. From an early age, Oshimigo focused on the micro steps needed to continually grow and learn and constantly refine and improve his skills as a football player. And as Atomic Habits author James Clear says, it's the aggregation of marginal gains over time that leads to long-term lasting success. Little did Oshimigo know at the time but whatever he was doing was definitely working because he would go on 
to become one of the best high school players to come out of Windsor, Ontario, and go on to receive a scholarship at Stanford University and be a defensive standout on that team. This would lead him to be drafted in the third round of the NFL draft by the St. Louis Rams, and he would go on to play eight years in the NFL, five years for the Rams, two years for the Washington Redskins, and then he would finish his career off with the Philadelphia Eagles. In our discussion today, Oshimago and I talk about his journey in the NFL and what it was he came to better understand about himself through this experience. He has always been guided by his faith and the deep spiritual framework that he has put into action in his life to honor the talents and strengths that he feels he's been given and the responsibility that he feels he has to give back to the world in special ways to serve others with the gifts that he has been blessed with. Oshimago firmly believes that a coach has the power to change a person's life and that it is a role that cannot be taken lightly. Using his own experiences as an example, he speaks about the impact that his high school coach Harry Lumley had in his life and the difference that he made. We go into many other aspects of Oshimago's journey that I really look forward to sharing with you in this episode. And as a college football player myself, and being from the same hometown, Windsor, Ontario, it was great to connect with Oshimago and to have this discussion on my podcast. Wherever you are in the world right now, thank you for taking the time to listen And I hope you really enjoy this conversation and you share it with at least one person who you feel will benefit from listening to it as well. With that, let's jump right into the discussion with Oshimago talking about early days in his life growing up in Windsor, Ontario. Sure thing, Andy. And uh, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I appreciate you reaching out to me and uh, getting to spend this time with you. Well, uh, as you said, my name is Oshimago Atogwe. I was born and raised in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Uh, My parents emigrated to Canada back in the early 70s, and uh, they did so to establish a new life for their family. I have three older siblings, two older sisters, and an older brother, and... um, yeah, uh, life growing up in Windsor was fantastic for me because it afforded for me everything that, you know, I love to do. Uh, I loved being with my family. I loved hanging out with my siblings and I loved playing sports and being active. And Windsor was a huge, um, I would say, hotbed for athletics, whether it be baseball, hockey, basketball, football. It really uh, gave me an opportunity to kind of play any sport um, and and play it very, very competitively. I think Windsor was a fantastic city, had a lot of talent, a lot of athletes and a lot of successful athletes. So I feel like I grew up in the right city based on my, my makeup and the things I wanted to do. And so uh, what was the the other question? Just, you know, just uh, a little bit of what you're most known for actually. Okay. Yeah. So for me, just the thing I was most known for was, uh, sports athletics. Uh, I played pretty much every sport under the sun. I really excelled at football, basketball, track and field, probably my three main ones. 
And uh, from out of those three, the one that Mama, Mama. stood cut above the rest was football, mm-hmm. which I was able to uh, garner a scholarship from Stanford University, where I played four years, started my last three years, and then after that was drafted into the uh, drafted to the NFL in the third round to the St. Louis Rams. Awesome. Awesome. And just for the listeners, we, this is the first baby I've had on the podcast as well. So you might as well take this opportunity to to introduce your son or daughter. Yes, this is my daughter. Her name is Zeme. She's going to be a year old in about five days. And generally she sleeps until about 730. But of course, on the day that I have uh, an obligation, she wants to be awake and hang out with me. Well, no problem. No. She's, she's the first, uh, she's the first baby on the podcast. So let's just take full advantage of it. Um, to, to really set the context further, can we jump back to early days and just, you know, you touched upon the role of physical activity in sport and what it played in your life. And, uh, ultimately how did that shape you? And, and before answering that, our good friend, Craig Poole, let's give a big shout out to Craig. He was my wide receiver in university, fantastic receiver. He reached out to me and, and has some really kind words that I want to read to you. And what he said was, I coached high school track and football during your whole high school career. You were a very special athlete, cerebral, fluent, and most of all, humble. Uh, He was a seven meter plus long jumper, 14 meter plus triple jumper. And that is amazing for a kid who picked up the spikes only three months a year. As for football, don't kick the ball in his direction. He was like the high school Deion Sanders of his time, (laughs) hand speed and elusiveness. So I have a question about that, but let's just take this time to uh, say happy birthday to Craig Poole. I I hope your birthday is great today, buddy. And, um, that was a great quote that you um, you put together. What were some of the early strengths that you feel you developed as an athlete that would go on to serve you so well and guide you toward your path in professional football? Uh, well, first of all, I'd just like to say thank you, Craig, for uh, your kind words. Uh, it's very humbling to hear that and uh, much respect to you. Uh, but to answer your question, Andy, I, I just think growing up, uh, one of the biggest things that was to my advantage was being the youngest of four. Um, sometimes when you, you grow up in a family of that size, you have to learn at a young age that you got to fight for the things you want. Yeah. And, you you know, co- so competition was ingrained in you, was embedded in you from a young age because everybody's vying for the last cookie. Everybody's vying for the last slice of pizza. Yeah. And if you're not scrappy and you're not, uh, <laughs> uh, industrious, you won't, you'll often, more times than none. You won't end up with what it is you want. Yeah. And so for me, I learned that quality of life from a young age. And so the things that I wanted, I went after and that served me well in athletics because, you know, that is the, if not, I don't believe there's a better place in life where competition is best, uh, best served or that competitive nature is best served. 
And so I, early on, my first sport I did was track and field. And I feel like that might be the sport that everybody starts with first. Cause when you're a little kid and you're three and you're on the playground, the first thing is let's race. <laughs> I'm faster than you. Yeah. And so without le- knowing any technique or knowing anything else, you just let's race or you pick something. I could throw this farther than you. And so just that, that competitive nature for me was something that I had from childhood. Right. I really want the listeners to better understand your journey uh, to put it into perspective And not only did you go on to have a very successful career in the NFL, you came from Canada, a country that has very few players make the NFL, let alone Windsor that has even fewer players. So if we think back to your time, I think there was Brett Romberg and Ed Filion were probably the two. And I'd played AKO football with with Ed. And neither of them, um, you know, I think Ed maybe did one year. Brett lasted a number of years, but on practice Mm -hmm. rosters and had some starts. But I really feel that you were a genuine trailblazer that inspired up-and-coming football players from Windsor to think about what's possible. And knowing that, I, I wonder about the mentors you had in your life, a lot of professional athletes have these big time mentors who might've played NFL or NHL. But my feeling is you probably didn't have a lot of those mentors. So can you just talk about your mindset at that time? And did you believe you had what it took to go on and play professionally? Was it even on your radar? So just kind of talk about that to frame up the rest of the discussion. Okay. Um, I, I would definitely say, I think one of the blessings from growing up in Windsor was just, um, you're, you're, you're from a small city. And so you don't know enough not to know enough. Mm-hmm. And so with us being so close, being a border city with Detroit, you had huge influences from the American public. Um, I was a huge uh, Detroit Lions fan. I was a huge Red Wings fan. And I could see, okay, oh, I love the Detroit Lions. Barry Sanders is my favorite player. I want to do what he does. Mm. And so you you have the, uh, on the one side, you have the huge sky's the limit potential of seeing what's possible. Oh, he plays football. I like football. I want to play football. But you're not in the atmosphere where people tell you, you can't do this and you can't do that because you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so when I was young, I was six, seven years old and I, I love Barry Sanders. And I said, okay, I, I want to play football. Lo and behold, I start playing football later, probably by the time I was eight. And that was largely because um, to bring me to your second question, like a huge mentor in my life who I always looked up to and followed was my older brother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was a fantastic athlete in his own right. And so every sport that I played, it was because he played it before me. And so I saw him play run track and I saw him play football and I saw him play basketball. He also played, he also did Taekwondo, which I also wanted to do, but for some reason, my parents wouldn't let me. <laughs> um, but so I followed him. I followed the path that he was already trailblazing. He was a sportsman. Mm-hmm. 
So I was going to be a sportsman. I loved Barry Sanders. So I was going to play football. And so I had that dream from, from the age of eight and, and having that dream, all I knew was what I had in front of me. So if I'm playing in the Windsor minor football league, I know at some point in time, if I'm ever going to do anything, I have to excel here. Mm. Like I don't really know what it takes to get to the NFL, but I'm nine, I'm 10, I'm 11. I don't need to know. I just need to know if I can be the best on my team. Oh, okay. Now if I can be the best in this league, okay. If I can be one of the best players in the city, that has to be a stepping stone to getting to somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so I had that mindset at every stage and every step of the way, let me just work on first being my best, whatever that meant. If I was extremely fast and extremely good, okay, what can I do right now that if I get better, I become better. And then after being the best that I could, when I show up for whatever game it is and whatever competition it is, let me compare my best to everyone else's best. And by the grace of God, at each of those successive levels, whether it's Windsor Minor, then on to Herman, and then on to Ravens, then on to Stanford, I continue to display that my best was on par with my peers, or it was better than my peers, which allowed me to see kind of see the path or see what I needed to get to where I wanted. And so that's how it happened for me was just having that small mind or huge goal, but uh, simple, but humble mindset of let me just take control what I can control. And that's me being my best in this moment and compete to the highest degree that I can against everyone else's best and just see where I stack up. And if I fall you, short, where did you learn that? Like, I'm interested to know because the story you're telling is one of great independence where you came to these conclusions and you, you made these realizations. Uh, you came to these realizations along the way. Confidence comes from what we say to ourselves. And this is rooted in science now, sports psychology, mm -hmm. but confidence comes from also putting in the hard work. So did you have people that were also poking you and, and, and letting you know, like you, you have what it takes or was it very much an internal part of everything that, that you did and really self-driven? Yeah. Uh, great question. Uh, I, I would say it wasn't so much externally reinforced because like I said, you're, we, we grow up in a city where like, like you, you alluded to many people haven't done this before. Mm -hmm. And so the goal of going to the NFL wasn't uh, one that was supported and it wasn't even one that I probably shared with a whole lot of mm -hmm. people. If anybody, I was a very private person, but I, I spoke about it previous growing up the youngest part of you has to, has to develop that independent self-driven will. If you're going to get something accomplished, you have to be the one that's the, the driver of it. And so God blessed me with that, 
innate sense of just being self-driven. Things come from within me to outside of me. And so having that faith and conviction in my own self was paramount at a young age. And I just truly believe that was, you know, a gift from God. And so having the confidence to then take it to the next stage or the next stage, it was all that I knew. Um, you know, I talked about how you're on the playground and you're like, well, I'm faster than you. You're faster than like, All right, let's see. And like, I, at some point in time, if I'm going to do anything, I have to first believe in myself and put myself out there. All right, let's race. I don't know. I don't truly know if I'm faster than you, but I know I'm fast. So let's race and we'll find out. And so after you do that from a young enough age where you, okay, I've beaten a lot of people. So you test this, you have this internal drive or this internal sense of what you're able to do. But then when it gets affirmed and confirmed by you doing small things, like I raced this kid and I beat him and I raced that kid and beat him. And and I've stacked up all these confidence builders when you get to the next thing of, okay, now I'm playing football. Am I a better football player than somebody? You have a track record of your internal belief bearing truth. Mm. And so you, you then become a person who's convicted of, well, I believe this about myself before and it was true. So when I believe this about myself now, this new thing that I've never done, but I have this same belief that I'm able to do it. The only experience I have about me and my own self beliefs is that they bear truth, like they come true. And so that's what I'm going to trust. And that's what I'm going to follow. And I think I don't believe that's something that I invented or created, or I really believe that that's, it's a grace of God where each, each of us, a measure of faith is given to him. And he gave me a measure of faith where I get encouraged each time I'm able to do something and successfully do it leads me to more encouragement and more faith and more belief. And it just kind of compounds. Yeah. And that's, that's a great story. And what a great lesson for coaches and teachers listening to this and, and the potential that exists with them finding the right conditions for all their learners or players to flourish, you know, and the mm-hmm. book that comes to mind is Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is a fantastic read, which is mm-hmm. all about 1% better every day and the, and the aggregation of marginal gains. Yeah. Exactly what you said, the, the little steps, you know, along the way, and you keep reinforcing good habits, belief in yourself that keeps that cycle of confidence and motivation going and belief. And, uh, and I want to jump into our connection with Harry Lumley. And Harry Lumley, just to set the context for the listeners, Harry was your high school football coach, and he was my first uh, quarterback coach at AKO when I played AKO Fratman. And he was, you know, to this day, he's, he's one of the few coaches who really believed in my talents as a quarterback. And I clearly remember how patient he was with me uh, when I got in games for AKO as a young quarterback and I made mistakes and threw a pick. He was there with an encouraging hand on the shoulder, helping me understand what I did wrong, not attacking me and yelling at me, but just really working with me in a very nurturing way. And uh, I wanted to ask you what your memories of Harry 
uh, were like, you know, when, when he was your coach and what was it that he helped you to better understand about yourself as an athlete? Yeah. Um, I have a lot of fond memories of coach Lumley. Um, one of the, I guess my main memory or my main thought, whenever I think about coach Lumley is his selfless, uh, willingness to help and really serve and do whatever he could to help somebody get where they wanted to get. Uh, I, I, coming out of elementary school, I went to Parkview public school when I was a kid, majority of the kids who went from Parkview normally went to Riverside. That's where all three of my other siblings went. They all went to Riverside before me, but I chose to go to uh, Herman, not because I knew anything about coach Lumley, only because I knew that Herman was a school back then known for its athletics. They're an athletic powerhouse. And I said, okay, if that's where the best athletes go, that's where I'm going. And, you know, and, and I, and I believe that was, you know, we talked a little bit about my independence Part of it was also I didn't want to go to Riverside because the rest of my siblings went to Riverside and I want to kind of blaze my own path. And, and it's it's funny that when I think about it, because there's at every step of the way, you see there's times where God kind of intervenes and he leads you in a way that you probably don't know why you do something, but you just you know you're going to do it. And all of this leads me into the path of Harry Lumley, who's, you know, my favorite and most uh, impactful coach I've ever had, because the thing that he was able to do for me, I was a rough kid where he, where I was get, I was great in school. I was an A student. I was great at athletics, but I had this uh, stubborn mentality, this uh, attitude problem. And the, the thing he was able to do was refine me as an individual. Like, it's okay. It's great that you're a great athlete. It's great that you're a great student in the classroom. But if you're going to be a jerk and not a, a good individual, people won't really want to deal with you for long periods of time. And so that's one of the first things he did for me. The second thing he did for me was his validation um, I would say exponentially increased my belief in what I was able to do. When you meet someone like coach Lumley, who's seen the best of the best for the last 30, 40 years come through a city and he's seen talent and he has an eye for talent. When he says you're able to do something then it's not only my self-belief. Now you're having outside validation from a trusted and verified source that's also saying like what you feel on the inside is capable out here. And so that gave me an anchor to go out in, okay, so that means these workouts that I'm going to do in the morning or this extra running I'm going to do is really beneficial. Like I need to do this. Like it gives me even more motivation and more purpose to do the things I've already been doing, but now it adds an extra oomph because 
oh, if he says I can do it, then it's probably that this is a reality. Like this is something that's real, realer than what I thought it was a moment ago. And so he was able to validate my inner feelings and my inner belief on a level that made it tangible Mm -hmm. and gave me more purpose throughout my high school years. And it wasn't just me. Uh, it was no longer just about what I believed inside, but now I had an outside advocate who also believed this too. Yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful story about Harry and, and what you're saying connects and really resonates with me because he, he's so relationship based and, and that's what really matters to him with his players. And I hadn't seen him in years and, and he was seriously, even though I played five years for the Lancers and I had good quarterback coaches. It was always Harry who, who I, whenever I saw a Windsor football games, I just felt this such a connection because he, he invested time in me and he helped Mm -hmm. me believe in myself. And it wasn't just about football. And what really stands out is that I was in a, in a horrific accident and I was almost killed in Cambodia in uh, 2011. And I had reconstructive uh, surgery on my, my left hand and, uh, I went back to Windsor that summer and I, my hand was in a splint and, and I had, uh, I was featured in an article in the Windsor star where I was talking about, um, Joe Demore being the new coach and how all of the alumni were really going to support Joe. So there was this article in the newspaper, the Windsor star. And then that night we were going to have a fun match against the, the alumni versus the current Lancer team. And it said right in there, the game time will be 7 p.m. I hadn't seen Harry in probably 12 years. And who reads the story and shows up and is there to give me a hug? Harry Lum. Yeah. You know, and it was it was kind of a, a real emotional moment for me because it wasn't about football. It was about deep human connection. And All right. Um, and that's what a coach inspires in people. And that's what you always remember long after your playing days. So I just wanted yeah. to, to throw that out there. Um, no, that, that, that was something too, I would say about coach Lumley. You always knew that he cared about you, the individual. Yes. He was a fantastic football coach. He loved winning, he always wanted to win, but his, his drive to win was second to his care for his athletes and his players. Mm-hmm. And whether it was me or the guy who wasn't as talented as me, he was there to support you and help you. And he was going to make himself available to serve you and help you um, no matter who you were. And so it wasn't just me that I felt that I got this treatment. Even the re- any teammate that I had, if you asked him about coach Lumley, they'll all have their own stories of how, yeah, he helped me do this and he was helping me with this and he gave me this opportunity and I was trying to find a job and lo and behold, he gets me a job over here. So I could, it's just like, mm-hmm. he was always there for you in the capacity that you needed. And that to me, you know, definitely stands out as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I've done, I've done some work with, um, I, I took a pretty deep, um, course, a certification co- course in sports psychology with Dr. Michael Gervais. So just to give you some background here. So Dr. Michael Gervais is the sports psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks, and he's teamed up with Pete Carroll. 
and they've worked very closely together for probably the past 10 years. So Gervais was one of the first to bring like mindfulness and meditation um, to the NFL with the Seattle Seahawks. And he has been a part of building this team culture in, in Seattle. And he and Pete Carroll created this course called Compete to Create. And it's all about peak performance and, and bringing out our best. So I had done this course and then you learn about Pete Carroll's philosophy in building a team culture. So I want to read you something uh, from Dr. Michael Gervais and what he says about Pete Carroll and the culture that they've created. And this is a nice segue after talking about Harry and the type of coach he was and the, and the type of culture he created for his players. So what he says is we are a relationship-based organization. Rather than having an outcome-based approach, the idea is that strong, trusting relationships among people who are striving to be their best versions of themselves create something powerful. So this is a philosophy that he and Carol helped to create together through hard work and filtering out all of the unnecessary stuff that gets in the way of success. And they've stuck to it over the years. So it's not so much, of course, winning Super Bowls is important, but it's more about this team culture. And a team culture can be incredibly empowering or hugely toxic. So I want to ask you, you know, about, and a lot of evidence and research shows that the best organizations have a very strong foundation of trust and respect, and that the leaders of these organizations demand that those in charge of leading lead in a way that empowers everybody in the organization. So even though professional sports place great emphasis on winning, what do you feel gets in the way of positive team culture? And how do you feel coaches need to lead to bring out the very best in their players? And you touched upon the things Harry did, but now let's talk at the professional level. Mm -hmm. oh, that's a, a great question. Um, like during my professional career, I was never a part of a winning team. So every team, oh, that's not true. One year we had a winning team. Did we? No. In St. Louis? Didn't. No, in St. Louis. Yeah. <laughs> my entire time in St. Louis, as well as in Washington, I, I played on all losing teams and so you could therefore say I wasn't on a winning organization. The thing that I noticed on those organizations was the lack of trust mm -hmm. and the lack of we're in this together. And in its place, you saw more pride and ego. Individuals who wanted to take sole success of a, a team's accomplishment. So whether it was the GM and the head coach weren't on the same page or the pro personnel director and the GM weren't on the same page or, or the head coach and the coordinators were at some place in um, the organization structure, somebody wanted to be the guy who took the credit for success and because he desired that more than anything else, it didn't make a way for the team to be successful because now you created this, I'm in it for me, and that would trickle down to the team. So whoever's in the leadership role, 
if they weren't in it for the team's success, how whatever stance they took on it would trickle down into the team. And so you'd have players who, well, I'm in it for me. Mm-hmm. And and defense, well, we're in it for us. I don't care what the offense does. Offense ain't going to score any points. We just got to go out there and try to be the best de- offense. Like, man, defense ain't stopping nobody. So we're, we just got to go up and put up 50. There was always a break, always a separation in the cohesiveness of being one unit, one team, one organization. And that was the culture in the, in the building. And I, and I truly believe it starts on a professional level, the guy at the top, the person at the top whether it be male or female, the owner sets the stage for the organization's culture. If the owner takes a, we're all in this together um, stance and then hires people who come in under that culture and that philosophy, you're going to breed a team that when you start constructing it, there's going to be more cooperation and collaboration where, of course, yes, sometimes the offense is going to do well and we win. Sometimes the defense is going to – it's all one in the same team. Sometimes this – oh, this coordinator is going to get what – but at the end of the day, if there's total buy-in from the top of we're all in this together and by trusting one another and believing in one another and working together with one another is how we're going to achieve our ultimate goals – that comes from the top, then you're able to build a winning organization and a winning franchise. Without that, that trust and that belief in one another and that it takes all of us mentality, I just see like there's just too many opportunities for there to be separation and cracks that at some point in time is just going to dissolve the framework of what it is you're trying to accomplish and you won't get that winning franchise or that winning organization from that type of makeup. I think of uh, Pete Carroll and and when they lost the Super Bowl and that interception on the goal line and at the end of the game and Pete Carroll, like completely on his shoulders and he, you know, the team bonded after that. It it wasn't, even though people were really upset and, and there was a little bit of finger pointing, Carroll just took control of it right away. The team got together and said, this is our reality right now. And, and they dealt with it together. So he right away did not allow any finger pointing and blaming. They were, they were in it together and being consistent with that philosophy and living that philosophy over time. And if, a, as he says, if a player gets cut, we are so incredibly transparent and they know exactly why they were cut what they need to do to get better. And then we encourage them to go out and, and we support them in sending them to another team. It's that transparency and that trust, you know, that sense of belonging and significance. And that's what he lives to this day, you know, and I think that's why Seattle has been so successful. And I want to get to like kind of the, the, the work that Michael Gervais does with athletes and what he makes very clear is there are three things that we can ultimately control and train. And you touched upon this, giving numerous examples already. But what he says is we can control and train our body, our mind, our craft. That's it. Everything else is beyond our control. And the, the way that we align our thoughts and our words and our actions really, really matter. 
you know, when it comes to putting ourselves in the best position to perform uh, at our best. So I want to ask you about your inner dialogue as an elite athlete and what your inner voice was like when you were in high pressure, high stakes environment, which is every game, but in particular, Mm -hmm. some games are going to stand out more and be higher stake games, right? But what was your inner voice like um, when you made mistakes or faced difficult situations was it a helpful voice? Was it a supportive voice or was it critical and harsh? So just talk about how your inner voice as a professional athlete changed over the years and what that was like. Yeah. uh, That inner voice, that inner dialogue, your inner man is so crucial to not just athletics, but just you as an individual. I have this thing that I say to myself, I want to talk to myself more than I listen to myself. And it kind of sounds contradictory, but we have a, just because of how we were made as fallen individuals, we have this running commentary in our head Mm -hmm. of what we're not able to do, what we're afraid of, what we're worried of, what we doubt and what we don't believe about ourselves. You know, you, you, you come up into any moment of crisis or adversity and the first things, your thoughts, mm-hmm. your reactive thoughts are going to be one of a negative nature. And I know for me growing up, the easiest way for me to combat that was to face it. Okay. If I'm afraid of something that I'm going to put my body to do what I'm afraid. And so it was almost like, okay, I I work from inside out, but I solve problems from outside in. So my body is going to influence my thoughts. Mm -hmm. So even as I got older, every game I would go into, I always started with the mindset that I'm going to dominate and I'm going to play well. So that was like my initial mindset that I casted out. That's me talking to myself. But then in listening to myself, there was always a fear factor of what if you don't play well? What if you don't dominate? What if you, you're not good enough? That was the inner monologue going on. And so to bridge the gap between the two, I had to put my body to work. Okay, so why do I feel like I'm not going to play well? What am I afraid of? Oh, what if you're going to mess up? Okay, so that means I need to study my playbook to the point where I don't even have to think to know what I'm going to do. Okay, so you know what you have to do. What about the other team? Okay, that means I need to study my opponent to the point where I prepare myself for 99% of the positions or the situations I'm going to put myself in. Okay, so now I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what my the opponent's going to do. Okay, so what if... You're not good enough. Okay, so now I need to go out and train my body to do the things that I need to do so that I can do what I'm supposed to do from a defensive standpoint and I can combat what the offense is going to do. And so there was this systematic breakdown of bridging that inner monologue to that outer reality or that outer self-talk of this is who I am and what I'm going to do. And so every game... I had to go, no matter if I just played a game where I got 10 tackles and two picks, boom, Sunday's done. 
Monday, you're recovering. You're looking to that next team. Oh, here it comes. Same thing. Okay, now you're playing against these guys. And you have to go through that process again to the point where it's almost insane. Like, it's like, why would you, how can you not just build off the success of the last game? And it's like, for me, it was always a result returning back to humble beginnings, building yourself back up and then going out there and doing it again. Like you can't rest on last week's success. And so I always felt like in order for me to be who I wanted to be on Sunday, I would have to one cast out the vision of this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. And then when all the doubts, the fears, doubts, worries, unbeliefs crept in, I would have to have an answer for them, a tangible answer of why you're, you're false. And what I say is real. Mm -hmm. And that was through my preparation throughout the week. And that's what gave me the validity when I showed up on Sunday that I'm going to do what I said I was going to do because you now these things, those inner monologues, I'm not listening to them. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to myself and that's what I'm listening to. And so on the game day, when something were to happen, Oh, you missed a tackle or somebody caught the ball. It's like, ain't nobody worried about that because we're going to dominate this game Mm -hmm. and we're going to make these plays because I make these plays I've showed all week that I make these plays. I've showed all year that I make these plays. I've showed all my career. I make these plays. This is who I am. Yeah. You might have caught one ball. I might've missed one tackle, but that's not who I am. It's just a, that was an aberration. We're going to, we make these plays. And so you get into that mode of believing who you are, according to who you say you are, because you have the proof of it through your preparation, through, the other, your experience and just through your history of playing that sport. And it's just those little steps, step by step, week by week, day by day, that allows you to continue to build into that, that persona that you've created for that day or for that game. And I think, yeah, that's basically or what has worked for me and how I had to approach those moments. Yeah. Anthony Calvillo spoke very deeply about his um, mental preparation. And he, when he was on my podcast a few weeks ago and he, he specifically talked about that, that idea of being completely prepared and no. So what I ask athletes on my podcast is the role of visualization. So I asked Anthony if he visualized plays into his head and seeing the coverage and then picking the right receiver or checking off and going to another receiver. And he said, he didn't really look at that. He visualized the defenses that he would face and then how he would respond to that. So he didn't really visualize the ball in the receivers getting into the receiver's hands or anything. Did you visualize one-to-one matchups? Did you visualize defensive coverages? talk about the role of visualization in this process to mentally prepare, because that looks different for different athletes. Right. Um, I would say I, I struggled in and out uh, trying to use visualization tactics. Um, it was something that I, I, I practiced or I would tr- try to do, but it never really 
solidified mm-hmm. for me in preparation for games. I don't, I think the, the biggest thing that I would say I took away from, uh, you know, my attempts at working at visualization, maybe I just didn't do it well enough or um, stay at it long enough was just that having a concept of, I could see myself generally doing the things that I needed to do. Mm-hmm. Like if I sat there and I thought about the game, you know, if I prepared well that week, there wasn't a situation where I could not see myself. And I say, see myself where I didn't envision myself not being able to perform right. and do what was needed. Mm-hmm. And so, because I had that. So when I close my eyes and I see myself, it's like, yeah, I'm ready for this. I'm ready for that. I'm ready for this, ready for that. It gave me the confidence going into the game of, it doesn't matter what position you put me in. I understand what your offense is doing. I know exactly what we're going to be doing on defense. I'm ready for those moments. And so it wasn't so much because I've heard other players who will sit there and say, you know, I visualize myself catching the ball, running, making this guy miss. And like you could see in them, it's an active where they're playing a movie in their head. And I've also heard a lot of boxers talk about this. So I visualize myself in the ring going through my game. And like, we, I've already fought this fight 10 times. And, and, and when I hear them saying that, I've always sat with admiration saying, Oh, I wish I could have an active mental uh, visualization process like them, but mine didn't work like that. My wife is very much like that where when she says she sees herself doing something, she actually sees it like it's a, a TV show and mine, mine just didn't work that way, but it was more so to reinforce my inner beliefs of what I believed I was possible or able or capable of doing uh, on any given moment. And because I had that inner belief that I could do it, no matter what the picture looked like when the moment arrived, I was ready to meet the call. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think when you say that you weren't, it didn't really stick with you. I think part of that, if I was to, to guess part of that might be because it wasn't prevalent in the league, even, even it's, you played from 2006 to 2011 or 2005. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. it's just been like in the last four or five years where these um, strategies, uh, sports psychology strategies have really, really taken off. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it was prevalent. And, and, you know, did you guys have a sports psychologist that you worked with on, Mm -hmm. on the different teams? You you only have that at good organizations. <laughs> right. Like I said, we weren't on too many winning organizations. I know the Rams were successful right before I got there for a number of years. But after that, you know, they struggled for a time period. Uh, we did while I was at Stanford, we had a, we had a few sessions with a sports psychologist who kind of took us through some of those visualization practices. And that was my first uh, encounter with it. And so that's when I, you know, from there, I began my journey with just trying to, you know, utilize it as a tool, but it wasn't anything that I had constant, um, coaching on or training on to really hone its ability. But I have seen it work for plenty of other players. I've, you know, I've listened to Russell Wilson talk about it often. And like I said, a lot of boxers that I follow, 
I hear them talking about it. And even MMM players like yeah. Conor McGregor, yeah, you know. hear them talking about, you know, yeah. I visualize this fight and, and I can honestly see it and hear it yeah. in their voices. Like when they say it, it's like, no, they've actually fought this fight in their mind. Yeah. And it's a powerful thing. Cause I know it's, you're definitely capable of doing of doing that. And that's, it's a, it's a real reality to sit there and actually experience it before it's actually happened. I just never been able to tap into that yeah. effectively. And, and what Michael Gervais works very closely with Russell Wilson. So they've, they've worked on the strategy of visualization. And again, it's a trainable skill. And what yeah. Michael Gervais does, he works with Olympians. He works with all sorts of pros, PGA tour players and what he gets them to do. And this is up to them. They have the autonomy to take it in whatever direction that they want. He gets them. It, there's a powerful skill also in visualizing failure. And that would throw some professional athletes off. Like, why would I want to visualize failing? But you're not visualizing failing. You're visualizing how you're going to pick yourself up and get back and perform at your best. So for some professional athletes, uh, NFL quarterback, they will visualize total success 85% of the time. But part of their visualization will be that 15 to 20% of the time during the visualization, it might be a pick that they throw the feeling that they have going off the field and then the feeling of going back on the, the field hungry to get the ball back in their hands to succeed. So mm-hmm. it's the visualization of how you will pivot and recover from mistakes, not right. the mistake itself. So again, it, it really is a trainable skill. So, and it's, it's a lot more prevalent now in the different professional leagues and professional sports. And, and what I wanted to ask you about as we kind of move towards the end of the podcast is retirement. And there's a lot of research that shows that deep satisfaction and fulfillment in life comes from having a sense of purpose and meaning, right? And when we have that purpose and meaning, we're going to have more fulfillment. And many athletes, you read about it all the time, um, they struggle to find a new purpose or deeper meaning in their life after they retire. So what was the process of retirement like for you? And in what ways did you strive to find continued purpose and meaning in your life after your playing days were done? Mm-hmm. Um, it was, retirement was a hard thing for me, <clears throat> as it is for most athletes, because it wasn't on my terms. Mm-hmm. So I retired in 2000, officially in 2013, my last game was in 2012 and I wanted to still play, but the NFL had other uh, plans for me. And so they, they forced me into retirement. And uh, the thing that I guess most people don't, the thing that they may not know about most football players or just don't aren't empathetic to is that most, for most of us, playing football was a dream we've had since we were a child, you know, a boyhood dream. And this is most athletes. And so it's something you've been doing from before you knew you were going to do anything else. And so when you have something that's been with you for as long as you've had memories, when you're separated from it, you don't realize how much, how intrinsically it was woven into your identity. Mm-hmm. At 
seven years old, you're not taught to, you're not taught that you, what you do is not who you are. You know, when you're seven and you say, you know, I play baseball, you're a baseball player. Or I play football, you're a football player. Like, oh, you're a football player. And you're told that, oh, you play football, you're a football player. And, and so at that age, you learn, okay, what I do is who I am. I am a football player. I am an athlete. I am a this. I, I am that, that phrase. I am a, you've been saying it for 20, 30 years now. And so now when you arrive at the moment where you're no longer, you no longer play football, but you still say, I am a football player. You know, there's a crisis of identity. Yeah. And for a lot of us, it's, it's very challenging. It's very, very challenging. And it was challenging for me. And I had the, the benefit of understanding, you know, when I was 20 years old, I gave my life to uh, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so from there, I learned that I'm not just a football player, but I'm a child of God who's loved by God. And he's created me to have talents and gifts to share to the world, to show how great he is. And so I had that other narrative become a foundational narrative when I was 20 years old, but still from the age of seven till I was 20 in their formative years, I believed that I was an athlete. I was a football player. And so even though I had this new narrative that was more true and more real than the old one, it's hard to supplant things that have been ingrained and embedded in in you from such a young age. Mm -hmm. And so I struggled with it. And those who don't have that other choice of who you are, what your identity are going to struggle even greater because now this is truly all they know themselves to be. And for me, it took some time to just get, get familiar with who I am at 32, who I wanted to be going forward and really go through the process of getting to know myself again. And getting to know not just who I was as an athlete, as a football player, but get to know what other interests I have and other interests I had and other uh, desires going forward that I wanted to fulfill. And for each individual, the amount of time it takes, it it varies. Um, But I would say for me, it took the better part of five to seven years where the early years, it was rougher than it was in the latter years, but to really come through all the way out of retirement and understand, okay, I got a lot of life to live. Um, and I want to live it joyfully and I want to live it successfully and to really like move on from my playing days. It it, it took a while, but uh, you know, I'm definitely thankful that I was able to do it. Yeah, I had a lot of support from my family. Um, my wife was fantastic with that, just giving me the space and to kind of like figure myself out and figure things out and just being there for me. You know, I became during my transition out of the league, I became a father. So my son was born shortly thereafter. I retired and then I had another daughter and then and recently another one. And so I started to take on some new roles in life that gave me fulfillment and that I could transfer some of that, um, that confusing energy over to that 
unfulfilled energy over to and I started finding fulfillment and being a father and being a husband and, and and then also I got like I said I got reacquainted with my childhood self mm-hmm. and and in doing that it uncovered some of the dream the other dreams that I had as a kid you know I really loved to draw I loved to write awesome. I was very entrepreneurial and so you start you don't realize that, you know, when you're six, five, six, seven, eight, you have other passions, but sometimes you just, you're naturally more gifted at one. And so you pursue that one and then the other ones kind of fall off. But the thing I learned by the grace of God was those passions still remain. Mm -hmm. If I was a kid who loved drawing and writing and doing these things, Oh, I still love doing those things. Oh, and I loved learning about business and being entrepreneurial. Oh, I still love those things. And so if you allow yourself the grace and the patience to just, you know, be still, keep yourself busy, these things will come back to you. And when they do, you then realize, oh, there's more to this world, or I have more to give to this world than just, I am a football player. And then you can get just as passionate about those things at this, at the new age you're at, as you did when you were a kid and you were pursuing athletics. And so that's been one of my saving grace, just getting reacquainted with myself and finding these passions and now saying, okay, I'm going to do this for the next 30 years because I'm really passionate about this in this season of life. And so I'm going to pursue that. And that gives me, um, some fulfillment from a contribution standpoint and allows me to move on from the accomplishments that I, that I have had and then look forward to the ones that I will have. Yeah, that's, that's such beautiful. There's lots of advice interwoven into what you just shared and it's, it's finding purpose beyond what you think your identity was, you know, and as Mm -hmm. athletes, you know, I remember, you know, I just played college football, you know, and and I did the best I could. I taught myself how to throw a football and punt a football. I had a dream of playing in the CFL. Of course, in my, in my mind, I wanted to make it, but realistically, I, it was very difficult. So I can accept that I didn't, but I really followed my dream. You know, this book grit by, uh, Dr. Angela Duckworth is is all about the passion or the power of passion and perseverance. And mm-hmm. and what you just described really sums up what's in the book and what the book is about is to find purpose and passion in something and then put your total effort into it. And for a professional athlete to find new purpose, because a lot of professional athletes don't. And they really, really struggle. So it's, it's great that you were able to frame that up. And if you were to project forward, what is your biggest hope and what do you want your legacy to one day be? It's hmm. a great question. Biggest hope and what my legacy to be. Um, one thing I, I would say, uh, I'm a firm believer. The, the Bible says that we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he planned for us uh, beforehand. And so we have a potential to do a lot of good things for a long time. 
And so I don't believe the good works that God had for me are in the past. I believe that there's still a plethora of good works for me to go out there and do. And so that gives me a purpose. Mm -hmm. Okay, Lord, what are the good works that I have yet to do that you still have for me? There are a lot of people who need to be served in a way, whether it's through advice, through resources, through time, through um, encouragement, that I can still go out there with what God has given me and the experiences I have and pour into all these lives. And so for me, my legacy is going to be about serving people with the time I have left. My immediate family, I want to raise my kids to be God-fearing, people-loving individuals who want to contribute to the greater society in a positive way. I want to love my wife so that she can wake up every day and know that she's loved and adored and that she has value and meaning in this world. Um, To my peers, I want to be a great friend who supports them in their endeavors and encourages them to really go out and pursue their dreams and their passions. Kind of like that book. I'm probably going to read that book. Mm -hmm. All the books you've suggested, I'll probably going to end up reading over the course of this year, but to really instill in people in this time, the dreams that you have are uniquely yours. If you have them, they're there for a reason and to encourage them to have the courage and the passion to go pursue them because there's something glorious waiting for them if they do that. And I truly believe that when the Bible says the good works that he has for us, he only creates those and puts them in our hearts individually. And so what he's given me to do is not the same that he's given someone else to do. And so in order for the world to continue to be edified and get better. We have to have the courage within ourselves to believe that this dream that I have is special and it's worth me pursuing. And so if I can help more people pursue their dreams and live out their dreams, um, I think that would be my service to humanity is just letting them know, yes, I lived out my dream and now I'm on to my second dream. And a huge part of that is helping individuals live out their dreams and contributing to the world from that standpoint. That's beautiful. What a, what a great way to conclude the show. And, and I think that's the most important thing um, to me in the work that I do as an international educator and um, what I've learned through my journey of living in five different countries. You know, I left Windsor. I never, ever thought I would ever leave Windsor, you know, and I, I graduated from the University of Windsor. Um, I got, I went to the teaching faculty of education and I just seriously never thought I would leave. And, and my wife, well, then girlfriend, um, she had an opportunity to go to Japan for a short stint. And I said, okay, you know, I'll go there. And then we ended up staying 10 years in Japan. Our kids were born there. Then we moved to Azerbaijan, then Cambodia, then China, and we're now in Saudi. And our boys have grown up as children of the world and learning about right. culture. And, and although we sometimes feel we might have, um, we might have created a situation where they, they haven't really experienced Canada, 
Canada will always be there for them. And when they go to Canada one day for university or maybe to live one day, they will have experienced the world. And that's what I'm most proud of, you know, in the work that I do. And, and that's how I continue to find purpose in speaking to people like you and speaking to great educators and, and drawing out what personal and professional excellence means and the lessons learned to inspire the educators and coaches listening to this, um, what is possible and what their responsibility is when working with other people you know, to bring out the best in them, to help them thrive and flourish. And that's what this is about. So I, I really appreciate you being on the show to share your wisdom and insight and, and the beautiful work that you've done, man. I really appreciate it, Andy. Thank you for reaching out to me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm humbled by just even the invitation. I don't get to be, I don't get asked to be on podcasts very often. So I thank you um, for the work you're doing and just give me the opportunity to share a little bit of my story with uh, your wider audience. And I pray that it would touch some and help others and bless all. Awesome. Awesome. So, thank you. And, and uh, are you active on social media at all? <laughs> <laughs> I would like to say I am, but uh, that uh, I'm a little bit of a, her- of a hermit these days. Uh, I don't get out on social media too often, but I think I'm a venture more and more out there. It's just, I find it to be, it can be beneficial, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's an uphill battle for it to be beneficial. There's a lot, a lot that gets in the way of it being um, helpful. And so I, whenever I see stuff like that, I tend to just kind of steer clear of it and then stay focused. But I do see the good that it had, that it can do. And Mm so, I'm just trying to work on figuring out a way to use it as a tool to be helpful and positive and not everything else that it it can be and most certainly will be. Yeah, for sure. Well, the listeners, I know they can easily find you by just doing a search. So yeah, thanks very much for, um, for being on the show. Uh, You're welcome. Okay. I'm just going to close off the show and then uh, we'll just, I'll just say goodbye to you. So Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Oshimago Otogwe, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. You're listening to the Run Your Life Podcast with host Andy Vasily. 